2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ed Amon, And today, we are talking about a fantastic new book. It's called uh, Blood and Dirt, uh, Prison Labor and the Making of New Zealand. And we're talking to its author, Jared Davidson, who is an archivist by day and an author by night i wonder if he gets time to watch netflix but he's with us today welcome jared Kia ora, ed Kia ora, Tato. thanks for having me yes so um i know we've talked about this part in in our um, in our previous episode when when i talked to you before but generally you you have a specific way of looking at history and specific uh, uh, specific areas that you delve into things that are unknown, not really talked about. Um, so if you can um, uh, just um, uh, tell our listeners that, uh, what angles do you take and what inspires you to go into those histories?
1: Sure. So I guess I'm a labor historian, broadly conceived, so I'm interested in working-class history, working people's lives, and especially broadening the idea of class, um, thinking about how class and capitalism and state power operates within Aotearoa and New Zealand, but kind of beyond the industrial male factory worker. So try and expand our understanding of working class lives. And so that's framed some of the, the topics of research in the past, such as the revolt of um, workers in Nelson in 1843, which we talked about last time, or, for example, a history of New Zealand anarchism the industrial workers of the world, things like that. But um, I guess what frames my research is history from below and that kind of social history from the bottom up. Um, So that's both a a sympathy, having a sympathetic approach towards these workers on the margins, but also using it as a method. So thinking about how to do research, how to tell the narrative, how to place the reader into... The lives and the shoes of these people I'm writing about. So, yeah, that's it's kind of what I try and do. And I'm I'm interested in topics and and histories that maybe haven't look, been looked at too much depth, or things that have been looked at but but flip the script a little bit and and bring class broadly conceived in, into the frame.
2: And also, I've noticed in in your work, uh, you start at the one person and then it goes on to a macro level Uh, as compared to other histories which kind of revolve around the macro level and some some stories of people are told in between. But you always uh, base it on the people involved and and tell their stories and connect them from the start to the end. Um, Is that a conscious choice or that has developed as a writing style through time as you've written more books? No, it's a conscience, uh, conscious choice for
1: sure. Um, I think it was Marcus Redeker, the historian, who said that you can tell a big story and a little story. And um, I wanted to get away from the idea of just using a, a, a nifty example at the start of a chapter and then moving on completely and you never hear from that person again. So it's about thinking about a life or a narrative that tells the bigger picture, but not necessarily then making that person or that story stand in for everything else. So it is quite conscious. And I guess it helps in terms of narrative nonfiction as well. So I'm really inspired by writers like um, Adam Hothschild, David Graham, people who are thinking as much about the story and the plot and how it reads um, as much as, say, the, the historical historical context that, that we're traversing too. So, yeah, it is definitely conscious. conscious.
2: Yeah, it, it, it is a, a very interesting style, and it, it has made me more interested in reading more history um, and, and a couple of other writers from Pakistan that I've read uh, recently. Uh, there's a book, um, 1971, which goes into the history of the partition of um, or the separation of uh, Bangladesh uh, from Pakistan, and it, so it becomes like a people's history, and and they those writers usually label it people's history but you don't you don't usually you you don't label it as such but it is um it, it is one of those that it's, it it springs from the people and then um the story of the nation or the or, or the uh, or, or the era that you're talking about is told through their uh through their lens now this topic that came in when did it when did the interest peak um Going into prisons. I mean, last time we talked about it, we were talking about uh, Nelson and the uh, and the workers' uh, riots there. So um, in the in between time, how does that interest uh, uh, change to prison labor?
1: Yeah, when I finished Dead Letters, um, I was interested in the idea of vagrancy. There was a couple of people who were labelled as idle and disorderly in that book, and I thought that's interesting, idle and disorderly. Um, and so this book was going to be a history of vagrancy in Aotearoa, but then I realised that these so-called vagrants were being put to work to hard labour, often for short periods, but some longer periods. And I kept wondering what was the work they were doing in prison, and there are plenty of histories of prisons in Aotearoa New Zealand, but the work that prisoners did is kind of skipped over mostly. and. Mm. I think I had this kind of Hollywood perception of chain gangs in the quarry wearing stripes. stripes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, to my surprise, uh, looking into it further, um, prisons did so much work outside of the jails within Aotearoa, New Zealand and the wider Pacific. So that sort of became the lens. I was interested to look at what type of work prisoners were doing outside of the jails. And at the same time, I was learning more about abolition politics, learning more about the role of incarceration um, and not just incarceration in a very narrow sense, but how those enclosures and the, you know, the attack on idleness and and kind of is infused throughout wider structures of power. So those all kind of came together and um, I put the vagrancy book aside and focused on, on hard labor and the work that prisoners did outside of the jail.
2: Yeah, that would be, that would be a great, great book. Um, plus also somebody needs to write a book on Arthur Hume, but we'll talk about that as well. Um, the, uh, uh, that's what I, when I started reading your book, I started imagining, you know, when you go on the road and you, you're just driving around and then they have the stop and go sign. And I I just imagine that people are either going on a horse cart or something, and somebody, you know, you instead of looking at workers on the ride right and the diggers working, they might be chain gangs and they will be prisoners that you just walk through and pass through while they are working on the side, maybe singing a singing a song or or, or just uh, just going through, and then people with guns kind of hanging out with them. So it's a, quite a movie uh, style um, uh, uh, vision. So in in terms of the, the the terms right if you can define or just elaborate on what is unfree labor and what is free labor and then obviously uh, waged we would know um but and then what is forced labor
1: sure mm-hmm. yeah i mean i guess within marxist or even social labor historiography um Types of work regimes are often framed in terms of free and unfree, free being the idea that you and I go off to work and earn a wage and we're, we're free to sell our labor um, that way and unfree being the opposite end, something like um, slavery, perhaps, uh, mm. you know, being the opposite extreme. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in the book, and this is following a lot of other scholarship as well, is to try and break down that free, unfree binary. Mm. Because as, as um, historians and, and Marxists have told us, actually both free and unfree labor are framed by degrees of coercion. Now, you and I don't get up to work and go off and earn a wage because we want to necessarily. Mm. There's, there's different coercions at play and the same with unfree labor. And what I found studying this book, especially in the 19th century for men, um, that free unfree labor divide was really porous. You had um, a working class chap on a navy gang or a farm hand or working in town who could go into jail for drunkenness and then come out and get a job doing the very same type of work the very next day so one of the arguments is the book is is that we need to look at these as kind of continuums of coercion rather than necessarily free and unfree um that's not to dismiss the you know the particular institution that slavery was um mm. i don't want to dismiss that as well but thinking about the Aotearoa New Zealand context, especially in the 19th century, um, trying to complicate that idea of free and unfree binaries. And like you said, that vision of um, unfree workers on the side of the road, that, that was a vision that would have been normal in the New Zealand landscape for a lot of people. In in Wellington, chain gangs marched down from the terrorist jail to um, the brickworks at Pukehu right up until 1915. So Mm. uh, it was a common thing to see within Aotearoa New Zealand, yet it's not the type of image we associate with kind of New Zealand and the colonial kind of story that's told.
2: Yeah, and it's... um... It is interesting to see the, we can say the crime that people were paying their debt off from. Like, for instance, the idleness and um, vagrancy. It, it is very interesting to me because in, in a modern context, that, uh, that that is not considered or even thought about. While at that time, idleness was considered... A, a crime or things that uh, might lead from idleness might be considered um, a crime, and, and it turns out that like a, a huge percentage of people were in jail because of that. It's, it's like comparing from nowadays people people are people might be in jail for a smoking pot. Um, that that kind of comparison. So, do you think that it it had a religious? Or a economic a capitalist connotation of just hanging about that means it's a crime. You are not productive enough.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, you are totally right. So idleness or um, vagrancy, for most of the nineteenth century, was the second highest crime for men, at least behind drunkenness. And in the eighteen seventies, vagrancy and idle and disorderly charges were used very broadly against a whole lot of working-class people, including women, um, prostitution in particular. So it was this kind of catch-all social economy-type charge. And in Aotearoa, New Zealand, one of the, the things was that there was a shortage of labour and it seemed that to be idle, both outside of the jail and in the jail, was more criminal than crime itself. And that's one of the reasons why so much work, uh, public infrastructure was done by prisoners, because it was like, why would we leave all this untapped labour behind a hastily erected fence? Why don't we put them to work? And that was different to the UK uh, and something that was quite unique about Aotearoa and New Zealand. So yeah, that, that idea of idleness, And the inverse of that is improvement, right? So the Mm. original meaning of improvement from the 16th century, from the birth of capitalism in in the UK at least, is the idea that you enclose land and you turn land to make a profit. That's the original meaning Mm. of improvement. And it seemed to me this was really clear link from Samuel Marsden arriving in Aotearoa in 1814 wanting to improve so called improved Māori society, right through to idle labour power and idle landscapes in the New Zealand context being in need of Im- improvement. So, yeah, idleness and improvement become quite a, a, a strong framing throughout the book. And, and that's how I set up a lot of the chapters as well, going mm. from chapter one on Samuel Marsden and the Irish convicts right through to chapter seven on prison land
2: so i I would um and I would really love for you people should read the book and it's beautifully laid out uh, in the first chapter but um I would like to talk about or, or for you to elaborate a little bit this you can say uh, a it's not a for the lack of the better word it's not a pioneering story but it is uh, in the sense a, a kickstart to prison because in in Regular understanding of history and my understanding of history as well was like um, Samuel Marsden came and he set up uh, set up shop here and it was start of the missionary work. Now, if you go under the layer, who was with him and what they did. So, the in general imagination, people think that there were other devotees that might have come with him, and uh, would have worked together in a community in a communal thing, but. If you get, um, a point out what actually happened and how people who were helping um, or forced by um, uh, Thomas Kendall, uh, Samuel Marsden, uh, to work on the site at um, Hohi?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, in 1814, one of the first mission stations uh, in the South Pacific and especially in Aotearoa is set up by Samuel Marsden and a number of missionary families, including Thomas Kendall. Um, but they also bring convict labourers with them, um, many of them who had been transported to uh, Sydney, um, some of them Irish convicts such as Matthew Conroy was involved in the 1798 rebellion against the, the English. Um, so there's a there's a thread there of kind of radicalism and then uh, convict labour. And so these convicts are put to work at Hohe Mission Station One of the blacksmiths, Walter Hall, is a convict, and it's his tomahawks, it's his metalwork that he makes that actually pays for the land at Rangihoa, the hohi mission. Mm. Um, And one of the arguments of the book, and um, something that surprised me as well, was that not only were convicts brought over with Marsden and Kendall and others to produce... the the tools and do the labour, the mission, they also became a a jail. Hohi became Aotearoa's first jail by holding in chains, uh, runaway uh, uh, convicts, uh, desertees from passing ships, and they were kind of held in the the Hohi mission and used for their labour, and that's because Thomas Kendall was one of the first magistrates. So yeah, there's not only the convicts that came with Marsden, there's convicts being left in the settlement to do work before they're shipped back to Sydney um, to be charged for absconding. So that was really interesting to me because I think the story is that, you know, with 1840 and the Te Tiriti Waitangi jails get set up or it's this big old sea chest in Kororadaka that's the first Mm. prison. But um, if we look at, the nature of houses of Christians and prisons in the early 19th century, then Hohi Mission Station, in my view, is our earliest example.
2: Yeah, and it, it, it does uh, make sense as well. And um, do you think there was uh, some reasoning behind not making New Zealand? Um, because it, it it seems like perfect. Uh, it's like an island Uh, You know, uh, a bunch of islands uh, like Australia as well, big on continent. uh, Why not make New Zealand a convict colony?
1: Well, uh, the colonial office um, in the UK did actually think about Aotearoa, New Zealand, as the convict um, penal colony to replace the Americas. Um, but Australia kind of won out in the end, and partly because New Zealand and its rich resources of flax and things, timber, was nearby. They thought it would be able to kind of service the mm. colony of Sydney. Um, and and that kind of shapes the direction of prison labour in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because um, when... Lieutenant Governor William Hobson wants to come to New Zealand and sign this treaty with Māori, he is really dismayed at the idea of trying to do public work without convicts. He wants to bring a gang of convicts from Sydney with him, but the colonial office kind of refused. Um, and so that sets up the shape of prisoner prison labour to come because instead of being able to import convicts from afar, they decide the colonial state, decides to put the prisoners they have up to hand to work and they end up doing so much key infrastructure. And this is mm. really surprising to me, but, um, and the book set up around these workscapes as I kind of yeah. frame them and, mm. and, you know, that includes roads, public works, uh, military fortifications, uh, Arbors, banks, yes, yeah, so much stuff. Just buildings, everything. <laughs> yeah, so much stuff, and that was really, really eye opening to me. Um, and so, yes, yeah, as, as I said, the book kind of traverses those work regimes um, from the bottom up and through to kind of 1920s, 1930s, because by the time um, the 20th century kind of ha- kicks in, a lot of the work regimes of the 20th century are. In place by the 1920s and 30s, and plus I couldn't. I had to stop somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Otherwise, <laughs> maybe a part two. <laughs> so, um, so what? Uh, what are the? In, what, what are Tangata Nui thinking at that time? What are Maori thinking at that time? And I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's laid out in the book, but I really, I really admire your work. when you do the, you know, when you go into the letters and Thomas Kendall's letters show. Um, how how were Maori feeling at that time? So can you can you elaborate on that? Well, at, at, at Hoi at that time at the, at, at the inception of the first prison or the prison label labor, uh, labor uh, work ethic? What were uh, Maori thinking?
1: Yeah, there's a quote in one of the letters that you yeah referenced where Paul Mari, um, mm. one of the uh, rangatira, um, in the kind of Bay of Islands area is uh reduced to tears by seeing um, these deserters or runaway convicts in chains and being ready to uh, be sent back to Sydney. So foreign was the idea of confining someone like that. Um, And in chapter four, I kind of follow that through because that's the chapter on, I call it war. It's on the link between unfree labour and militarism. And unfortunately, uh, you know, some of poor Māori's kin end up in chains during the Northern War, and then that story of Māori imprisonment kind of through cap- war captivity um, is told in that chapter. And what's interesting as well, and, and something I didn't necessarily know, was that um, the prison population in terms of Māori was minuscule during the 19th century, apart from some key moments uh, associated with um, the New Zealand wars and other conflicts. And it wasn't really till the 20th century post the massive enclosure, millions and millions of acres of land taken by the liberal government for closer settlement and dairy farming that you start to see prison. Well,
2: Settin's time. Yep, that's well, right. so time yeah,
1: That's right. So sort of 1890s onward. Mm. Um, yeah. And you start to see uh, Maori prisoners and the, the rate of imprisonment increasing. But yeah, the, the, um, Tangata Whenua. Obviously, I'm not a Māori scholar, and these mm-hmm. stories, I I can't necessarily tell. But um, in that chapter, I do look at the Waikato Wars. I do look at some of the prisoners from Taranaki, the Pai Māori prisoners who are kind of imprisoned on hulks and then later put to work in in places like Dunedin and mm. Littleton and Okitika. Um, so it's definitely there. And then in the last chapter as well, I do come around back to kind of Marsden's vision of improvement and Mm. use that to tell the story of um, prison lands and prison farms.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yes, and it's um, also the the aim of imprisonment of Maori changes uh the aim of general imprisonment, you know, starting from vagrancy and other crimes and then putting people uh, to work in prison labor. But with Maori, it it, it turns more towards um, more colonial aspects of it in terms of confiscations of land and then the crimes that are uh, uh, categorized as crimes against property. And then it starts to increase. And obviously, there's certain cases um, uh, you mentioned also in um, in, in Taranaki and uh, Parihaka, people are taken prisoners and put in prisons for um, a long period of time without any trial or any um, any of the um, any of the uh, regular uh, justice avenues that uh, were available to uh, Pakeha at that time. Uh, one question I had it just popped in my head before I forget. In, in the pictures I've seen, people have their hands, uh, the prisoners would have their hands laid out. Um, you can say it's their mugshot. Uh, what's the purpose around that? Yeah, so, um, you know,
1: before fingerprinting, uh, yeah. but with the birth and use of photography by the state to surveil, um, the use of hands across your chest was basically to show um, any identifying features of that person. And then they were published in publications like the New Zealand Police Gazette and circulated around police stations. So, um, I mean, that's that's a good segue into both photography and sources because Mm. one of the things I found with the book was that there's very little photographic evidence of chain gangs at work. Uh, One of the reasons was that it was illegal to loiter near a chain gang. So photographers weren't allowed to get close. Um, In the 19th century... As, again, to come back to that kind of porous nature, um, sometimes it was pretty unruly, the chain gang. So you had working class people who were sympathetic to prisoners at work who would smuggle them smokes or um, alcohol or end up scrapping with the water if they got too close. Um, the flip side of that is um, you start to get a lot of sources about prisoners in terms of the police gazette, um, confinement, Uh, you know, they were surveilled and managed by the state. The problem is you don't necessarily have the prisoner's own voice in those records. Mm. Um, So for a historian of below, you really need to kind of either read the archives differently or look for sources such as um, petitions to the governor for an early release um, to try and get a sense of how prisoners experienced those work
2: regimes.
1: But yeah, essentially, that's that's the hands across the chest, so the state can
2: tell who this person is. And then uh, one interesting thing I found was the mark sheet, like a like an exam, you know, reward and uh, punishment. That was a, I mean, it's not a good thing, but uh, it was quite exciting to see that level of um, um, uh, inner workings of a, of a prison, so how one person has been good and how have they been uh, bad and was it a common practice uh, on assessing prisons on the day-to-day activity as well, or it was just that uh, one um, the one example that you had presented in in the book?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the thing to know for listeners overseas is that um, Aotearoa New Zealand had uh, provincial governments, um, mm. so regions had their own governments, which were kind of within a wider central government, and so um, between the eighteen fifties eighteen fifty three and 1876 uh, provincial governments had control of the prisons and control of the work regimes so you get quite a hodgepodge uh, Mm. cases of how prisoners are managed and measured and so some uh, prisons instituted this mark system as you said Mm. Um, and depending on the type of work you did as a prisoner you'd get a certain amount of marks and that might move you up the scale to earlier release or a different uniform or badge or if you played up if you were unruly or idle then you'd move down the mark system but a lot of jails realized that on a chain gang when work is so collective in nature it was almost near impossible to measure people properly and there's this tension within Aotearoa New Zealand's prison history about whether they're doing the separate system where prisoners are confined and they they basically, in solitary uh, rehabilitation, they come right, or mm. whether you're doing the silent system where you march them out to work, they're not allowed to talk to each other. And that's the kind of what, ends up happening in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, but yeah, so the mark system kind of comes and goes. And at one stage they realize it's too unworldly to, to actually measure people. But um, some provincial governments like Otago were really big on measuring both the work that gangs did and reporting on that, and then also reporting the monetary kind of savings. So All right. Is, yeah, it is pretty interesting.
2: It's – um. um one thing you just mentioned and it it, it has uh, sprung up an idea in my in my head um, about prisoners um, unionizing in an informal way or a formal way. Um, that was a quite an intriguing thing. To read, because in in the current system, those are those opportunities uh, you you can't see for the for, for the prisoners, and usually there there is a mutiny and people escape, and you can see it in the youth justice system as well here, um in um in modern times, but um how what were the opportunities and what what kind of paved the way for um for the prisoners to take collective action.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was to treat prisoners as a working class formation. Mm. So it seemed to me that New Zealand labor historians hadn't looked past the prison walls. It was like um, there's plenty of studies of different types of workers in nineteenth century New Zealand. You know, um, different crews, different gangs, but not prisoners as a as a working class formation so that was a really key point of the book and that meant I guess I could look at prisoner resistance and strikes and mutinies in that sense and you know there were opportunities to uh, plot and talk on the chain gang um, out in the works. Um, Prisoners escaped individually or collectively as, as a kind of protest from their work. But there were strikes and mutinies uh, such as quite a big mutiny on board, um, the prison hulks here in Esther, what was used to basically build all of the roads around um, Otago Harbour and I think one of the prison reports said something like, there was a brief disturbance, but everything worked out fine. And when you mm-hmm. see things like that yeah. in an official yeah. report, you know something's yeah. up. <laughs> um, and so I found the archives on that, that basically a prisoner had, um, was unwell and, re- and didn't want to be put to work that day. And he was uh, kind of bundled out of bed by the authorities. And so the rest of the prisoners struck work and refused to come up out of the hulk. Um, They ended up doing things like smearing food through their jailers' beds and stuff like that, Mm. and the ringleaders get sent off. Um, And what I also found, which was interesting to me, is that labor historians have kind of talked about New Zealand in the 1890s as a working man's paradise, that there were no strikes, and that it wasn't until kind of 1906, 1907, and the rise of the workers' radical workers' movement that strikes start to happen again. But prisoners on these various pine plantations are striking, 1903, Mm. 1904, the sabotaging um, tools and the planting of pine trees um, and often winning, you know, different conditions of labor and uh, uh, time about when they finish work and start work for the day. So that was really interesting to me to see um, that prisoners were kind of drawing upon um, methods and modes of resistance in the wider mm-hmm. world. And I think that comes back to that unfree free binary or the, the false nature of that
2: binary. Um, and also I think, uh, I suppose by that time, the, or it might have happened, but the fortification of the boundaries of the prisons um, hadn't happened um, too much by that time because the, um, uh, because at that time we need we needed the labor, and uh, in the book it is interestingly you've mentioned in several places where um, uh, different parties were arguing about why can't we get this labor, or we should do this project through prison labor rather than spending our own money. So it it was an economic unit or economic factor in the country's development. Um, Prison labor was 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 huge, whereas now it's it's more towards confinement. But at that time, it was a tool used by the uh, the colonial government to essentially build New Zealand.
1: Yeah, that's a key argument of my book. It is that um, prison labor was crucial to colonization, both mm. in Aotearoa and also in New Zealand's Pacific. So one of the chapters called Empire. Um, I really wanted to pick up the challenge of indigenous scholars, Pacific Islanders, scholars, who remind us that New Zealand had a role in the Pacific and Mm. that the Pacific is part of Aotearoa. So one of the chapters does focus on, um, the Cook Islands, Nui, Samoa, um, and a little bit of Nauru and Banaba, the kind of big phosphate producing islands
2: that you tell that those, that story. Uh, beautifully, uh, people need to go and read. Um, it kind of starts and then it connects in the end. I won't, I won't, um, uh, spoil it for, for the people. Yeah. Uh, Thank, I mean, that's
1: uh, actually one of the first chapters I wrote mm. because I'm not a historian of the Pacific or a, mm. an expert by far, so I wanted to make sure I got it right. Mm. Um, and yeah, so thanks, but yeah, there's resonances with the rest of the history there as well, especially how, um, I said at the start of this interview that New Zealand didn't import convicts, but actually in the 1920s uh, Pacific Islanders were sent from the Pacific to Aotearoa, New Zealand, as punishment. Um, Mm -hmm. So in those cases we did have uh, convicts coming from from afar to work in Aotearoa.
2: We're talking about empire. um, uh, So the... It, 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 in 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 the Pacific Islands, um, there was a slight difference in terms of uh, the creation of the of the penitentiary system or or the prison system. It's not exactly penitentiary system because it was it was the system of it became the system of the land, and there was a huge part Christianity played. In there as well. So, so, can you elaborate a little bit uh, more on that and how? What were the differences? Even though um, it was essentially quite similar, but what were the difference? Because it seemed more harsh and um, more. Uh, you can say a- as a tool, um, right with the right on the side of the army. You will attack and you will conquer a place, but uh, prisons will be actually one of the tools that you would use.
1: Yeah. Um- Especially in the Cook Islands and Samoa, both uh, prisons and prison labour were used um, pretty much immediately. So that was on the back of missionaries starting to basically attack the kind of sexual mores and cultural um, processes within the islands. You know, they, they, they were horrified by this idea of kind of Pacific Island communism where Mm. things were shared and and property was not individualized. And so prisons and prison labor uh, was quite different in the Pacific, but it had the same means of improvement. Um, Some of the main work that prisoners did in the Pacific, especially in the Cook Islands, were building roads, doing that harbor work as well, Um, but also plantation work. So, the Cook Islands uh, Trading Company had a plantation on the island of Manue, and that was where a lot of habitual offenders were sent by the colonial um, powers, and it was one of the most highest-producing copra plantations in the Mm. Pacific at that time. So there's, yeah, links to that as well in terms of improvement, idleness, and they weren't necessarily the big prisons that we associate with um, New Zealand and, uh, and walls. Sometimes, uh, in, in the early part of Rāra-Tonga's history, prisoners could go to ho- go back home at night and then mm. come out and do their, their charge mm. the next day. But essentially that worked for empire because it meant, uh, it was cheaper and it could also do that improvement. Right. Uh, it was, yeah. Empire on the cheap is what I, what I yeah. talked about. Yeah. Um,
2: and the, the chapter also, uh, kind of, lays down um, the history around the indentured labor that starts to come in um, from from China. and But the conditions were kind of still similar. Uh, so how would you say the indentured labor was just similar or different from prison labor, especially in the context of empire in the Pacific?
1: Yeah, I mean, that again goes back to that question of um, the binary of free and unfree and whether that's useful or not. And I think in some circumstances it definitely is. But in Samoa, for example, and in Nauru and Banaba, you had Chinese on indentured contracts. So basically contracts of three years usually to work for a specific time for a planter or for a a company. And if those Chinese labourers and Pacific Islanders, in some cases, if they played up, then they were put to work in the prison. And Mm. some of those work regimes were exactly the same as what they were already doing Mm. uh, under the indentured contract. In fact, if you look at the photographs, and there's a photograph in the book, of the Chinese quarters in uh, Nauru, they're all surrounded by barbed wire fences, Mm. uh, which I found very interesting, and those gates could be locked whenever there was kind of worker unrest. So there are definitely differences, um, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but I think it's more useful to see these work regimes on a continuum of coercion. And, yeah. and that's kind of, that's ripping off a whole lot of other historians uh, who have explored that, but that kind of frames blood and dirt and, mm-hmm. and the
2: labour regimes I cover. It is, um, so it, the reasons behind... Um... Indenture labor usually with my understanding or my reading of history is more related to the indian uh indentured labor going to uh the pacific as well with fiji and also then going to uh central uh central america caribbean the reasons usually were there it was kind of like bonded labor type situation that you were paying off your debts so um was it it was similar in this case as well Fine.
1: Yeah, in, in the Cook Islands especially, um, prisoners or those who were convicted of a crime were often fined in the first instance. And mm. sometimes the colonial regimes, because um, each island had their own kind of administrator, so it was quite um, decentralized in terms of the work prisoners did. But in some cases they preferred the fines, they preferred mm. the money, and mm. in other cases um, they preferred the labor or mm. those people who are convicted didn't have the money to pay off the fines. Um, so there's that sense of bondage there. If you can't pay this fine, you will go to work on the plantation, or you mm. go to work making these roads, or you will blast the coral reef open
2: for commercial trade. So, yeah, there's an element there as well. Mm. Uh, talking about plantations, but we'll talk about a different type of plantation. the, the ones that uh, uh, prisons kind of built in, in New Zealand, uh, Now, people might have an understanding of um, tree planting activity as a nice uh, outing and you go and plant some trees and um, that's it. But it was quite starkly different from uh, the regular tree planting activity that you do on a school trip. Um, it, 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 it um, It was quite revealing to me that they were... Essentially, sometimes more horrendous conditions than just building a road, uh, building a road or building a harbour, plant uh, plantations of trees was one of the worst ways uh, people were employed in unfree uh, labour.
1: Yeah. So um, from 1901 onwards, prisons were set up uh, in remote parts of the country um, to plant trees. Basically, there was uh, the state feared a timber shortage, and thought, why not put prisoners to work? Um, So the first one was in Waiotapu, which is around the central plateau near Rotorua, um, and that becomes Kaingaroa Forest, which then becomes the crown's jewel in terms of its multi-billion dollar pine asset. Um, And there were other pine plantations uh, in Hamner Springs, uh, Dungree and Marlborough, and various places around the central plateau. And before prisoners were marched out and to do this planting work, they were essentially tussocky scrubland. So there were mm. no forests in Hamna uh, or Kaingaroa, which is, you know, if you drive past it a day, it's just like it's always been there. Mm. But the conditions could be horrendous. Freezing cold frosts, um, bitter winds, um, pine trees scratching at eyeballs, losing fingers and thumbs. And Waiotapu, what was interesting about that landscape was that it had thermal areas. And so the state actually took those areas from Māori uh, and then
2: turned them into tourist ventures.
1: But because of the thermal... And it was
2: essentially more like um, um, a mixture of confiscation, shoddy deals... And obviously, Ministry of Works, uh, that type of ways, that usual usual ways that were done to confiscate Maori land, correct? Yeah,
1: yeah, there's a yeah. number of laws around that time for the kind of scenic or mm. preservation of scenery, and mm. they were used in that area. But it meant that prisoners were basically planting trees around bubbling mud pools and mm. steam vents and all sorts of things, so... Um, That idea of workscapes from Thomas G. Andrews and other historians really helped me frame the book. And and, and one of the things I wanted to do was to convey that this wasn't just a labour history, it was an environmental history. The more I realised that I was writing about prisoners in the landscape, the more I realised there was a story here about how prisoners transformed space but were also transformed in turn so that that was kind of a new approach for me and trying to go you know history from the bottom up right from the land itself
2: yeah and it it is it essentially changed the environment essentially the basis of uh of uh, uh the forestry in in new zealand um was kind of changed through prison labor other people worked on it as well but it, it it is a a major factor in that now i mean i we didn't talk about i mean i've i've heard your other interviews as well around it so we've you know you've talked a lot about different places around the country which are done uh um which are uh, which are built by prisoners um so I would not go into too many details of that, but which ones, which a couple of places where you were quite amazed and realized that, Oh my goodness, it just exists in front of me. And I never knew.
1: Yeah. I mean, the forestry ones for sure. Like, Mm -hmm. um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Christchurch and every so often would go to Hamner
2: Springs and I used to sit in a field. I was, I was so amazed when I this whole story about Hamner Springs. I was like, oh my God. So. Yeah, it's, it's for those who don't know Hamner
1: Springs. It's kind of like an alpine resort now. It's this kind of walking and cycling paradise through the forest that was yeah. in part raised by prisoners. But yeah, I used to draw that forest with my dad as, as a nine-year-old and had no idea. And then the forestry in when you when you drive through the central plateau, it's just lines and lines of pine trees, which have roots in prison labor. The other one that really surprised me were the the, the first highways through the central plateau. So prisoners basically were the first people to complete the road joining Wellington to Auckland um, yeah. on the Waikune side of of Mount Uruapehu. So before that time, it was all Bain trunk Line Railway. Uh, and so prisoners from these road camps made the first highways through the central plateau and then for decades upkept about 130 kilometres of highway, mm. um, and so there's a linked to tourism there in terms of getting skiers and tourists up Mount Ruapehu. Milford Sound Prison, if we're talking about uh, tourism, mm. um, Milford Sound Prison was established in 1890 to turn a, a rudimentary track Um, through the Milford Sound into a road and it didn't Mm. happen because of the weather and unrest and other reasons but that's a great
2: story actually in the book yeah yeah,
1: anyone who's walked the Milford Sound track um, finishes their walk at Sandfly Point and on the kind of sculpted track that prisoners did but I mean one of the biggest um, places that really surprised me was Littleton Littleton was Mm. a place that um, I used to visit or um, in my teenage years, I was, um, you know, at university years, I played in bands there and um, so much of Port Littleton, uh, its roads, its seawall, its harbour, its piers, its um, embankments were made by prisoners marched out of the Littleton jail, not to mm. mention all of the military fortifications on ripapa island and all yeah. around that harbor so that was really surprising to me as well but i hope Ed, that the book uh does make people think differently about the kind of spaces we take for granted and maybe look at aotearoa new zealand in a in a new light
2: hmm. and also for for listeners i would say that um, it, it's essential to get the because the book is kind of laid out uh in different sections was but it it uh, the story connect. so it uh, the story uh, the, the story is about uh, how industry was set up in new zealand um, um how prison labor uh was involved in war um empire and uh, and colonization so all these are laid out beautifully in, in in chapters and um and also the the conclusion is is fantastic uh, um as well well now we're talking about the conclusions i would so what do you see uh, in terms of the the lessons uh, for the future? because nowadays there is a great chatter around the essentiality of prisons or uh, or uselessness of prisons. And how important is this history of unfree labor connected to, um, they connected to incarceration. Um, and how important is it so that we can find a, f- a future where uh, where there is where prison is not a tool of in- incarcerating uh, tangata Fenua and also uh, not a tool of um, just confining people? Um, I've, I've I found it quite a reflective uh, book uh, reading this uh, reading this history. What do you what do you see?
1: Yeah, I think I see now, having done this research, how implicated prisons and incarceration are throughout social relations of capitalism and colonisation. Um, they can't be separated or hived off, even though you know prisons these days are hived off and, and kind of out of sight. Um, both in the 19th century and arguably today, prisons play such an important role. Um, in terms of, yeah, whether that's kind of managing surplus populations, whether it's colonization, whether it's kind of a geographical response, whether it's um, a tool of mobilizing people so that they uh, do certain things or don't do certain mm-hmm. things. Um, yeah. That, for me, was a real eye-opener. And in terms of the future, I think if this book is of any use to, people thinking about abolition and, and different ways of addressing harm. Um, then yeah, I'd be very pleased if, if blood and dirt kind of adds to that conversation. I don't necessarily have the answers. I'm still learning that too, but yeah, I think, um, if this book lends itself to conversations about,
2: Mm. um,
1: abolitionist futures, then yeah, I'd be very happy.
2: Very nice. So, um, now, Blood and Dirt, the title, we should, have, we should have talked about it right at the top. But in any case, uh, I wanted to talk about that. And also, you kind of very nicely just put your positionality right at the top, that where are you coming from? It's not like a regular historian who comes from a neutral point and just lays out all the resources and that's it. Um uh, so what, what kind um, of motivated you to do that? And where did the name come from?
1: Yeah, so Blood and Dirt is famously um, a quote from Marx. Mm-hmm. You know, he
2: says that capital comes dripping from
1: head to foot um, with blood and dirt. Um, and it also framed the story, I realized, because here was blood in terms of human prison labor mm-hmm. and sometimes extra human, and mm-hmm. then dirt being that environmental um, aspect of it Mm. and that idea of idleness and improvement and waste linked both together. And yeah, um, I am, I, I'm not one of those historians who claim to be neutral. Um, I think anyone researching and writing stands by, or doesn't stand by (laughs) their choices Mm. and their approaches. Um, everything we do is as political, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, but yeah, blood and dirt, I really wanted to, kind of approach from a radical history bent and mm. and look at the, some of the kind of deeper causes and the social relations beyond just the surface of appearances. And that's where that blood and dirt comes back as well. So, yeah, that's, um, not everyone's asked me about that interestingly. <laughs> Maybe it's too obvious, but yeah, it, it became, it became a kind of way to frame
2: mm. both the story and the approach. Um, Well, um, I could. I mean, we. I wanted to talk about Arthur Hume, but you know, some. I think maybe it's a future book by you, but I don't. I don't think you're writing uh, biographies. Well, maybe, (laughs) maybe later in life. But that seemed to be. uh, He seemed to be a interesting character, Um, and also um, several concepts that might come out of this uh, this book, which would lead to other um, other academics or historians to uh, work on. Deeper. Now, what? What? What's? What's next? What's happening? Well, uh, are you just uh, hanging out, taking a break, watching some TV, um, <laughs> uh, or uh, on to the next one?
1: um I've I've got a few different ideas on where to go next, and I can't quite land on one, so I need to yeah. hurry up it's and the, make it. It's the whiteboard stage at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One is kind of. Uh, yeah, looking at a period between the Hohe mission and 1840 around runaway convicts. I think there's something to be said there. Um, and then there's. That would, that,
2: be, that would be intense archival
0: work.
1: Yeah. And then there's the Idle and Disorderly Vagrancy yeah. book. I think Policing yeah. Idleness is a story there. But I am interested in bringing nature, so called nature and the environment, into capitalism a bit more. And so yeah. there's some. Um, stories and threads from blood and dirt that i liked further as well so yeah i just need to land on one of those but and find (laughs) some time
2: (laughs) yes it will be great i'll be looking forward to it and hopefully we'll have another interview um people can find you at jared davidson.com Yes, that's the website. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's all, uh, all the uh, other works uh, are uh, presented there. The, you can check it out. But this book is uh, "Blood and Dirt: Prison Labor uh, and the Making of New Zealand." It's uh, available through. Uh, it's available everywhere, all bookshops. But uh, published by Bridget Williams Books, it's fantastic. Get your hands on it. Uh, and thank you, Jared. Thank you for um, having this extensive conversation. It was enlightening. And it really helped elaborate on uh, many of the things that were uh, there in in the book. So, yeah, have a fantastic week, day, um, month, year, and we'll talk again soon.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it.